Hello and a very warm welcome to Oxide Film with me, Tom. It's just me on the hosting front today as my co-hosts Massey and Colette, bless them, are trying to get through finals at home, so best of luck to them for that. For this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Vox critic Alyssa Wilkinson about the portrayals of the Christian faith across film. I've been really excited to have this kind of discussion for quite a while for quite a number of reasons, partly because Alyssa is an incredible film critic. I really recommend her work and the way that she analyzes film and breaks down stuff is just really, really good. Partly because some of the best films I've seen from this past decade have centered around the really difficult questions that faith can raise. And spirituality in general is something that has obviously been a huge part of humanity's existence since the dawn of time. But I, I just think that film is such a fertile medium for expressing spirituality in a number of ways which we'll see in this upcoming conversation. So, Alyssa Wilkinson is currently Vox's film critic, and before joining Vox was the chief film critic at Christianity Today. Alyssa is also an associate professor of English and Humanities at the King's College in New York City, where she teaches criticism, cinema studies, and cultural theory. She is also the co-author of the 2016 book, How to Survive the Apocalypse, Zombies, Cylons, Faith and Politics at the End of the World. Alyssa and I cover a few specific films in our discussion, namely 2017's First Reformed, 2016's Silence and 2011's The Tree of Life, so I thought it would be worth just giving a brief summary of each of these before we go into our discussion of them. So, uh, First Reform, directed by Paul Schrader, follows Ernst Toller, played by Ethan Hawke, the priest of the small First Reformed church. Toller has his faith and a lot about his attitudes to things questioned when he speaks with environmental activist Michael and clashes politically with the nearby corporate megachurch Abundant Life, which overshadows Toller's own church. Secondly, Silence, directed by Martin Scorsese, follows two Portuguese Catholic missionaries in the 17th century, a uh, hard sell, <laughs> Rodriguez and Garupe, played by Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver respectively, who travel to Nagasaki in search of their missing mentor Ferreira, played by Liam Neeson, during a harsh persecution of Christians in Japan. While there, the two missionaries undergo serious challenges to their faith as they witness the terrible punishment of Japanese Christians by the authorities. And finally, Terence Malick's experimental epic drama, one of my favourites of all time, The Tree of Life, starring Brad Pitt, Sean Penn and Jessica Chastain, among many others, charts the creation of the universe and the memories of the inner workings of a Texan family in the 50s. Just to say now, we get into minor spoiler territory for First Reformed, Silence and The Irishman, actually, so heads up for that, but nothing serious. I really, really recommend seeing all these films that we talk about they are all absolute masterworks in my opinion seeing something like first reformed was an absolute breath of fresh air when i watched it quite recently so as ever you can find us on social media on facebook at oxide film and twitter at oxide film it would mean the world if you could give a five-star review of the show on apple podcasts if you're listening there it really really helps people find the show but now, without further ado, I'll be joined in just a moment by Alyssa Wilkinson. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. joined now by Alyssa Wilkinson. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining me today on Oxide Film. Yeah, thanks for having me. To ask first, how are you doing under lockdown? <laughs> um, you know, I'm healthy, I'm employed, so those are good things. Um, ready for it to end, but I don't know when that's happening, and it'll probably be a long while for us here in New York City. So, for now, I'm just um, trying to make the best of it, I guess. <laughs> the, the work never really ends for a film critic, I suppose. So you you can keep pretty occupied with like the state of film and where we might be going in the future, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's also about 10 movies coming out every week right now. Um, so I'm scrambling to keep up with all of them. It's, it's as busy as it's ever been um, with new movies coming out. 
Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff. We might just start by talking about your introduction into the film world and how you became a film critic. Do you want to just give us a brief sort of summary of how you started watching films and how you became to be the Vox film critic that you are today? Sure. Yeah, I um I didn't grow up in a family that went to the cinema or watched a lot of movies. Um, that just wasn't really part of our family life. So I didn't really start watching movies with any kind of serious intent until after college. Um, I had moved to New York City for a job. And New York is, you know, what probably one of the best, if not the best, film towns in the world. Uh, we just have a huge number of theaters normally that are open and showing all kinds of things all the time. And I was living near Film Forum, which is kind of one of our oldest and most, you know, important film institutions. And so I started going there with my boyfriend at the time, who's my husband now, um, and he had gone to film school. So he kind of knew a little bit about a little, you know, a little bit about the history of film, a little bit about what was worth seeing. And so I, uh, I tagged along and then I slowly kind of became interested in thinking about film through a cultural lens and through a lens that thought about it as, you know, something to be close read and taken seriously, as well as something that's just entertaining. So sort of out of just blind curiosity, I took a, a, a course at NYU, a very short continuing education course on like film criticism and what do critics do um, that was taught by a guy who at the time was working for IndieWire. Um, and during that time, I kind of understood more about criticism and more about the field and then how how it gets done. And at the, I had also started freelancing just as a writer in my spare time because I was pretty bored at my job, which was in financial technology. So I started freelancing. I would pitch, you know, articles to editors. Uh, eventually, I kind of na nabbed some uh, freelance gigs and was able to write for different publications. I ended up working for Christianity Today as a, a freelance position, but it was pretty steady um, as the chief film critic. Um, and I started that in about 2013. I had written for them in the past, but it was sort of a more steady gig. And then did that for quite a while. And then in 2016, after I had you know, written for a lot of other publications in the meantime, I was offered the job at Vox. So I took that and the job, that I do is very much uh, focused on both thinking about, you know, writing about film as an object that we can review and, you know, critique and also, you know, praise, but also reporting on the industry um, and developments in the industry, which means I've, you know, written about everything from writer strikes to film festivals to lots and lots of things on the Oscars all of that sort of thing. So that's that's pretty much that part of the job. I am also a college professor, so I, you know, have this whole separate track of my life where I teach criticism and cultural theory, um, and I think those two things very much feed into one another. I think Vox is a really interesting platform for this kind of thing because, in general, they are, you know, a, a news-giving platform that is very involved in current affairs and is also a very important platform for just spreading good information and very clear information as far as I can tell in terms of the, the more broad political aspect of things um, but but with film obviously that kind of comes across with your work so clearly as well I find it interesting that you you yourself are a practicing Christian as far as I know and you are you are fairly clear about that in your own writing of reviewing films I mean I was re reading your review of silence yesterday and just having a look at how you you know you say I'm a Christian this is my you know I have this uh this outlook on the film partly because of that I wondered if if you have thought much about what that kind of means as a kind of critic in in terms of your relation to other critics because I, I haven't really had that much contact with other critics who are very open about their faith and also do you kind of know that it's a big part of how you see films yeah I think it's mostly for me something that I bring up when it is helpful for people to understand the perspective that I'm coming from you know I I, I think especially in a film like silence which is very much about not just people who are Christians, but like Christian theology and like major points of thinking about God through the lens of Christianity. Um, it's important to say like, 
hey, you know, I think about this as a person who has this predisposition towards this. And I'm certainly not the only one, you know, there's uh, L Justin Chang at the LA Times has written um, similarly in the past and Anne Hornaday at the Washington Post and there are others. So it's just helpful sometimes, I think, especially for readers who are trying to get a handle on who this voice is that they're reading. And I think this feeds into a larger perception, which is that film critics sometimes in the past have set themselves up as being these objective voices of, you know, kind of coming down from Mount Olympus with like the correct opinion about a movie. But the fact is that, you know, all critics are coming from their own personal perspectives. There's no like one correct perspective that we can have on a film. And so I think, you know, it's good for us to disclose those things, just like I would want to if I was, you know, reviewing a film that I don't know, was set in the town that I grew up in. I think it's useful for me to disclose that as well because it helps people to understand like, oh, you know, you know what you're talking about. Um, so that's a big part of it. Uh, you know, I think some people, and I don't know how much of this is an American phenomenon, but some people expect Christian people who write about films to be very moralistic about them. And I don't think that's actually at all part of a Christian framework for cultural criticism. But when I worked at Christianity Today, there were certainly people who thought, you know, you shouldn't praise a movie that has people who act in a morally objectionable way or who criticize religion or something like that. I don't believe that at all. But I think that, you know, for me, one of the things that's really helped me in my career is that I I have, you know, read and studied theology. I have a certain amount of knowledge about how um, Christianity in particular and religion in general thinks about reality. And so, you know, it's a filter that I bring to a film like Silence or like the dozens of other films that have that um, as part of what they're exploring. Yeah, I totally agree about the moralism thing. I think uh, I, I was going to, this is going to come up, whatever happened with this discussion, but I really recommend this podcast called Citations Needed. Uh, and they're a kind of, they're a political podcast that talk about the history of media and media betrayals of, of various political phenomena. But they did this incredible episode on what they called the Christian cinema GOP persecution complex, uh, which was about pure flicks specifically in their, and their so-called faith movies like God's Not Dead. And the narratives that are in those sorts of things and that kind of term faith movie is definitely something that i think the vast majority of people would associate with uh that that maybe that kind of film that sort of doesn't really have much of a message beyond trying to espouse a very limited uh evangelical view of christianity so i wondered if you had any thoughts about those kinds of films and how they relate to how christianity is is betrayed and and whether we should be looking for a more subtle kind of portrayal which obviously we'll get to with the films that we discuss later yeah i mean i i think mainly of those films as somewhere between this is going to sound pejorative i don't really mean that this way but somewhere between a sermon and a piece of propaganda um i think a sermon is fine a prop piece of propaganda is maybe more troubling but you know generally i think they're they're made for people who agree with them they're made to kind of, they make a lot of money. They make an enormous amount of money, um, very profitable. And they're kind of designed to like make people feel good and leave the theater feeling good. And that's, you know, that's fine. I could have been describing any number of genres that Hollywood churns out. I'm less thrilled about them because I think that Christian film in particular ought to aspire to more than just making money and making people feel good um i also think that you know at least in the u.s a lot of the christian movie industry is devoted to there's sort of like two streams there's one that's devoted to being kind of inspirational in the vein of a greeting card or something like that and those are pretty harmless and then there's ones that are devoted to being really political um and those ones commit the same fallacy as a lot of Christianity has, which is equating a political position, a, a partisan position with with faith. Um, and they're doing it in a way that I think is really, really harmful. So I have varying critiques for varying films, but I do see them. And most of the time they strike me as 
you know, they're fine. They're, they're, they're a lot of what you might see on a cable TV network or something like that, but they do make an enormous amount of money, which is why people keep making them. Um, my hope, you know, in the films that I really consider to actually be Christian in nature is that they, you know, we have films that explore things like uncertainty and mystery and doubt and all of the stuff that actually marks, I think, religious exploration and the path that Christians are on and also that doesn't you know doesn't only kind of take one perspective on what it is to be Christian which is often at least in you know the films that we've seen it's often sort of affluent suburban white evangelicalism which isn't really helping anyone it's just sort of passing the time so I, I aspire to more from art, and I would say that of many other genres and many other kinds of films. Um, and I don't think that a movie should be above critique just because we happen to agree with some of what the creators had in mind when they made it. The, the point about the, the Hollywood kind of melodrama, which comes up in your chat with Paul Schrader about First Reformed when you talk to him about that, I think is really salient because, as you said before, like these, this so-called christian movies from from pure flicks and that kind of stuff do fall into those traps of of constructing a film like any other film that's designed to make you feel good and leave the cinema having fulfilled certain expectations which i think is something that first reformed as an example is the perfect antithesis to so like i guess we could start talking about that like, i guess the first thing to say as a film that it already succeeds uh, in comparison to the kind of evangelical films that we've uh, discussed just now is that it has a very intersectional for want of a maybe better word approach in that it kind of it has you know centers on Ernst Toller, Ethan Hawke's character and his small church first reformed and his relation to the mega church abundant life and Obviously, the film has a massive environmental message. So I guess I, I wanted to just ask you quickly what you thought about how the, that film in particular treats this approach to faith with a very, very interconnected stance of the, the local politics going on, as well as the very, very heavy uh, themes of, of sin against the world and that refrain in the film that we see come up more than once, uh, will God forgive us? Uh, in terms of that environmental damage. I wonder if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I, you know, First Reformed was, <laughs> when, I knew it was coming out because a friend of mine had heard, kind of caught wind of it and had talked to Paul about it. And then later, uh, A.O. Scott, who's one of the chief film critics at the New York Times, is a good friend of mine. And he he saw an early cut of it. And he emailed me immediately and said, Paul Schrader made a movie for you. <laughs> I was like, great. It's actually, uh, hilariously enough, it is actually set in the county where I grew up. So it's very, very close to my heart. I think um, one of the things I love about that movie very much is that it, it kind of embodies the same ambiguity and uncertainty that Paul Schrader himself has always been part of. I mean, this is a guy who grew up in a fairly strict evangelical background um christian reformed church which is you know fairly strict he didn't really see any movies till he was 18 which is a lot like me and then he you know started seeing them while he was at calvin college and ended up writing taxi driver which is probably not a movie that most people would have immediately pegged as like a christian movie but it was sort of a perfect pairing of writer and director because martin scorsese is just as haunted by religious questions although from a different angle but um but first reformed you know, what's great about it is that Schrader himself feels pretty ambiguous about the characters as we should too. He, you know, he doesn't think the megachurch pastor is in the wrong really. And he, he in fact told me, you know, he casts that character very specifically so that people wouldn't have a knee jerk reaction to sort of your typical, you know, the kind of character you would normally see in a movie would be like a Southern Baptist pastor who's just kind of a, you know, hypocrite or something um just this stereotype and he was like no i want to do it totally differently so he has you know cedric the entertainer who's just a different different character altogether he also doesn't really think that ethan hawk's character is in the right um he's kind of going through a dark night of the soul that's become something like despair um that becomes something like a death wish even though he might agree with his um thinking about you know the environment and how our failure to take care of creation is driving us basically off a cliff. Um, 
and how and you know non-christian that is and yet you know politics gets in the way um so there's all this kind of you know uh thwarting of expectations i think in the movie that made me really glad to watch it and one of the things that I found most interesting about it is a lot of people talk about the end of First Reformed where you kind of don't really know what's just happened and you're not sure if what you're seeing at that moment after he's kind of wrapped this barbed wire around him and drank poison. You don't know if what you're seeing is a hallucination or real. Schrader told me and many other people that in test screenings, they would ask, what do you think happened here? And people would say, oh, I think this happened because of this other thing. And then they'd go back and tweak the cut to make it even more ambiguous. So he really wanted you to come out feeling, I think, very unnerved and unsettled. Um, and I think that's probably the best thing that religious film can do is make us feel unsettled. Just like, you know, religion is like not supposed to be a comforting thing for comfortable people. It's supposed to be something that challenges us and you know, scares us a little bit. I mean, if we, you know, if we're suffering, it's something that can comfort us. But if we are comfortable, it should be something that unnerves us. So I think, you know, the film does that really well. And it also does it where, you know, you might find a character who you agree with their quote unquote message, but you don't agree with any of their actions. And so you're left kind of in this place that very much resembles real life where, no, nothing is uncomplicated or black and white. Yeah, I think uh, uh, the the Kierkegaard uh, novel, the, the Sickness Unto Death, is maybe the best way to describe Ernst Toller uh, in terms of he has this like obviously horrendous alcoholism and also very serious health problems and seems to be basically eating nothing healthy at all as well. So you have this man who's clearly abusing his own body and that's a really huge part of his journey and the fact that he enters a really dark place because he's not looking after himself in the way that he should and he's not nourishing himself in a way that a, a christian would i suppose and that kind of reminds me of um that the, the obviously the barbed wire ending as well is a part of that uh what i might what i in my head associate more with the catholic idea of the mortification of the flesh as a general thing when I was at school, I watched this. Um, there was a an Italian count who made a TV show about him just kind of driving around Italy, learning about different Italian cultures. And it was sort of slightly narcissistic, but it was it was still decently fun to watch. And there was this one episode where he went to a village that had a tradition of all the villagers kind of going into parade and all cutting themselves as a kind of as a rendition of of Christ's suffering. And I was um, as a christian growing up at least i was really troubled by that because that that self-harm was something that i saw as so insanely antithetical to what being christian is supposed to be about in terms of you're meant to look after your health because we're we have these bodies that are meant for flourishing uh, i guess that's maybe the maybe the result of doing too much aristotle right now as a classicist um but yeah i i want i wanted to ask you a bit about the the narcissism of faith in that film as well because we we start with this place of really beautiful contemplation where toller's character starts the film with a journal saying he's going to write a journal for a year and then sort of see how it goes and then destroy it at the end and it's it kind of it, the the narration accompanies you over the film and is sort of an anchor for his thoughts and his increasingly dark and troubled ideas about yeah what we've done about the world and the questions that come up because of his encounters with michael the environmental activist who eventually kills himself i wondered if you if you thought anything about that sort of portrayal of a religious man who is clearly very thoughtful and clearly has a, a complex relationship with god but it ends up being something that is more about his own poetic expression and his own expression of his own feelings rather than a concern for other people or a concern for how humanity is supposed to relate to god yeah, I mean, I think maybe one of the keys and the most radical thing about this and the thing that really bothered people the most is that like we're not supposed to want to be like he's not supposed to be an example. Any none of them are supposed to be examples for us um of anything other than what can happen if um you know we lose hope or I mean talking to Paul about it, he said, you know, he doesn't have a whole lot of hope either um, that you know the world is going to be 
convinced of the necessity of action. I think it's hard for us to imagine, uh, even though we've been through a season, a long season of anti-heroes being the center of movies, I think it's, you know, Ernest Toller is not, he's not a anti-hero either. (laughs) He's just a guy who is going through this kind of horrifying thing and takes these wild actions. And so, no, I don't think anyone should act like Toller, but I also think you know, a, a lot of people pointed out that there's an interesting counterpoint between him and, you know, the main character in Taxi Driver, who also kind of becomes a vigilante um, on a mission of justice that's totally in his head. And I think, you know, that's absolutely true. But, uh, you know, what's most interesting to me is that all of us become can easily become that person. Maybe a lot of us are that person. We're all kind of on our own little missions. Um, where And we do things that sometimes I think make absolutely no sense to the people around us and sometimes that that's because we don't understand and sometimes it's because we've we've kind of gone a little off the deep end um and so I think you know a lot of a lot of what's in first reformed is that and it is kind of more thinking about the human impulses that we have and the things that we share despite our religious convictions or the things that we claim to believe and then it is kind of proposing a message or a course of action in any way, which, you know, is a big function of art. Art often depicts the tragedy of the world without giving us hope. And that's an old, old story. Um, But there is, you know, there are notes of hope in First Reformed, even if they're not big parts of the film. I, you know, I recommended the film instantly as soon as I saw it. And I think I saw it three or four times that year. And people would send me emails like, I can't believe you told me to watch that. Like, you know, it made me feel so terrible. I'm like, well, yeah, that's definitely the point. Like, you're not supposed to end this movie and feel good. But also, you know, Schrader himself says that part of his conception of what happens at the end of the film is that, you know, God welcomes Toller into heaven and that heaven is like one long, slow kiss. So, you know, the way you read it varies and those variations might have everything to do with who you are. So it's a film that reads the audience as much as the audience reads it. Yeah. Just to go back to the note about the antiheroes, I thought it was a really pertinent comment because that idea of having a single character on a kind of mission that is in a, in a certain way inexplicable to the people that's around that character it speaks to this uh very widespread idea of the of the solitude of quote-unquote real faith and like, being kind of actually right about something in opposition to everyone else and that's kind of the i guess the sort of breed of conspiracy theories that have become well, have been popular for such a long time as a as a as a phenomenon but i i guess that the solitude of faith and 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 also the themes of nature and God in nature both translate really well to silence. So I guess we can move to there. I mean, yeah, just just for listeners, I list, I watched the film for the first time last night uh, and it's a very long film. It's a very brutal film. And I kind of woke up and tried to do some work, but it was basically just sitting in my chair thinking about a lot of the film and how how, how fertile it is really and how fertile it is in ideas and how many routes you can go down into and trying to talk about the themes and unpacking that stuff. But I guess what I was most interested in was, again, that sort of potential narcissism that you see in characters that we're not supposed to identify with, but are kind of central figureheads of Christianity within their own world. So the character of Andrew Garfield in the film has a moment where he looks into a pool and sees the face of Christ looking back at him. And he and, and a lot of the film is trying to make a point about him equating his own mission with Christ. And then Liam Neeson's character, when he meets him later on, actually points that out. Uh, so, what, yeah, what, what do you think about that kind of idea of, of making your mission like that of Christ's? Obviously, Silence is a, has got that at the central core of its, of its story about missionaries in Japan, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, so much of Silence, and, you know, Silence is based on a novel that is quite an important one. Um, And that's, I believe, 50 or 60 years old. I'm forgetting the date it was published. But um, I had read the novel years ago and was really, I knew that Scorsese had optioned it right after he made The Last Temptation of Christ, which I recently watched for the first time and thought it was 
pretty tremendous and was surprised um, that I hadn't seen it before. But in any case, he was so dispirited by the way that The Last Temptation of Christ was received by religious people who just kind of lost their minds over it that, you know, he was kind of in despair and a Episcopalian priest who he was sitting next to at a dinner recommended he read Silence. And that was kind of what saved him. Um, and he loved it so much that he optioned it. And then it's just a, it's obviously a difficult novel to adapt because it's about 17th century Portuguese priests in Japan being tortured. So not the easiest thing to get funded. Um, it took a really long time. It was very bumpy. It is a tremendous film. I, I think what you're pointing out is exactly right. And it's pretty much the harmony between those two movies is the idea of people who are meant to be very close to God or think they are very close to God discovering that the missions they assumed they were doing for God might have actually been for themselves and, or maybe not. And the movies leave that open to interpretation, which is should hopefully give us pause, especially in an age where, you know, everyone claims to be doing something because it's, it's what God wants them to do or, you know, or what is right. Um, the idea of kind of holy wars is not restricted to the religious people, but um you know, one thing I love about Silence is that it it takes its sweet time at spooling that out where you really don't know what you're watching for a lot of the movie. And, you know, the, the physical torture is hard to watch and there's all these things. And then by the time you get to sort of the, the part where Liam Neeson resurfaces in the movie, you're almost as confused as Andrew Garfield's character is where you're not you're not even sure who the right person is in this context anymore. And Shisako Endo's novel really explores that very deeply, that link between suffering and righteousness and the fact that not all suffering is righteous, but that it's very hard for us to know that and hard to know what is right in these contexts. Um, there's just a lot there, I think. And Again, I think the fact that the film refuses to give you an answer to that is very, very, very difficult for a lot of people. Um, it's not something that anyone really likes experiencing, I think, is the raising of questions without the giving of answers. But I think what that does and what a great movie or work of art can do is the questions remain. And like you said, you kind of just are still thinking about them later on rather than feeling like, oh, okay, it's been settled. Like we can move on to the next thing. Um, it lingers with us and it forces us to think about what that means for us. You know, who am I <laughs> in this? Who, which character am I? And what would I do? And I've, you know, I've seen the movie a couple of times. I've read the novel and honestly, I don't, I still don't really know what the answer is uh, for myself. And that also changes how we think about other people, um, I hope. But I, you know, Silence was a funny one. I saw it, I knew it was coming. I knew what it was gonna be. And it was, you know, definitely my most anticipated film that year. And then I saw it with a bunch of people who kind of knew about it, but hadn't read the novel. Um, many of whom are, you know, critic friends of mine who, would probably call themselves agnostics or atheists. And um, we, the screening I distinctly remember was in a fairly large theater, the press screening. It was like the week before Christmas, because of course it's a Scorsese film and he's famous for never finishing his movies till the last second. And we're all sitting there, you know, it's kind of the end of the movie season, we're exhausted. The movie started at like 8 p.m. on a Friday. It was very, very strange. And then we, <laughs> The movie got over three hours later and this credit started rolling and nobody moved. Like it was like nobody, I've never seen it before. Nobody could figure out what had just happened to them. And like people sat through the entire credits stunned. And I thought that was, you know, that was a testament to what that movie was. And it's, you know, I was talking to one of my friends later and he was like, you know, that's the kind of movie that makes me wish I could believe in God. And that's, I think, maybe the best thing that a, that a movie about, about Christianity could even do is not convince people that Christians are right about stuff, but make them want to believe in God. It's so interesting that the film has such apparently obvious characters that kind of go back to the Bible. So I'm thinking of Kichichiro specifically as the, as the kind of Judas foil figure. And then obviously you're supposed to 
to sort of by by that logic equate Andrew Garfield's character with the Christ and then and then just sort of see how you go with the narrative. But as you say, it decidedly steps so far back and away from oh, it's just a repeat of what the Bible story is, that you are left so confused. I guess there's a really cool point for me in the film about philosophy of language. And when Liam Neeson has that extended scene where it is revealed that he has apostatized and he's trying to explain to Andrew Garfield's character that he, Liam Neeson, that is, just does not believe that Christianity can take root in Japan at all. And part of it is because he talks about Francis of Assisi and when he got there and trying to work out how to relate Jesus and the Holy Trinity to the Japanese people and had to explain it through the sun, as in the sun in the sky of God rising. Um, and, and then him making the point that the the Christians, uh, Japanese Christians who die, apparently for their faith, are only really dying for the priests and and that kind of relationship instead, which I thought was so cool. Um, and with, with Scorsese, I don't know how you feel about this. And I, I haven't seen Raging Bull is most likely that the, the only major one I haven't seen yet. But I pretty much think he's got better as a filmmaker as he's gone along, because my favorite of, of his is The Irishman and it has that last half an hour, which is so rich in what it means to be truly alone at the end of your life. And showing up how obvious it is that the macho mobster is is so blatantly anti-catholic despite so many of those characters permeating scorsese's works for such a long time but but that was something that i that i thought was cool because obviously as you said before he's had such a long-standing interest in religion and the films that are about religion that he's made are not the only ones that have very piercing religious questions yeah, I after the Irishman, well, when it was coming out, I wrote a piece about how all of Scorsese's films, or at least a huge number of them, have been about God, even the ones that aren't obviously about God. Um, you know, like you said, um, I do think he's he's as he's gotten older, he's well, you can you can see him con- contemplating God and mortality and things from different perspectives you know, starting all the way back with Taxi Driver and moving forward. Um, so the older he gets, the more you see him thinking about mortality and immortality in the sense of like having a legacy um, and also, you know, whether that even matters. And the Irishman, you know, that was a great example. I saw that in a press screening. So I, and it hadn't screened anywhere. It was the first time and about two hours into it, maybe I thought, well, I've, I'm really enjoying this, but I've seen this movie before. It was called Goodfellas and I'm loving it, but uh, you know, why did he make the same movie? This seems odd. And I think there's some, you know, kind of facile reviews out there that say that, but there, it takes a real turn <laughs> at the last hour and you really have to watch the whole first section of it in order for that big turn toward something entirely different to really hit you in the gut the way I think he intends it to which it feels sort of like him looking back at his older work sort of thinking about specifically Goodfellas which it really does feel like it has a lot in common with that and then turning on a dime and saying okay you know we had this this was this was my life and now what and suddenly you know in the last section of The Irishman you know our our main character is kind of reevaluating everything that he's seen himself to be. I mean the first the first huge section of the film is just told through his eyes. It's him recounting his version of events and there are places where you think, "Wait, hold on. Is that all?" like when he talks about how he broke up his marriage and then he was like, "Oh, but they were fine with it. The women were fine with it and they move on," you know, or the fact that no women even talk during the first couple hours of the film and then we get to the last section and suddenly suddenly he's forced to come to terms with how he just didn't even pay attention to big parts of his life and whether that matters and whether sin can be forgiven and whether he wants it to be um all of that is there the last the last shot of that movie just destroys me every time I even think about it just you know sort of the priest trying to get through to him and then leaving the door open when he leaves and he's all alone in his room and it's just I mean it's phenomenal it's just absolutely phenomenal and so it makes perfect sense to me as a diptych with silence because those two films have everything to do with one another 
um, and in thinking about who are we, what kind of missions do we go on, and what actually do they matter when we come to the end of our lives. This is very present in Scorsese's work, no matter what you're watching. It's very true. I mean, as a whole, Scorsese films aren't supposed to be the happiest projects. Um, and obviously, we, we've we've talked about First Reformed and Silence now. And the question then become, I was talking to a friend, Joel, that I recommended uh, First Reformed to. And he said he watched it last night with his parents. And he's a, a very strong Christian. And he he raised the point of like this. There's nothing in this film that's celebratory of of the world. And, and I was kind of wondering what what you thought about that question of can you have a film that's really really about faith that's also truly celebratory of nature. I mean that that kind of connection with silence and Saint Francis of Assisi is really interesting. I mean it's obviously quite passing, but but uh, Saint Francis is so connected with the natural world as well in his faith and how he's presented as a saint. Uh, and I guess that maybe brings us to the last couple of films we could talk about quickly, which is Terence Malick's films, uh, The Tree of Life, especially, and The Hidden Life, a bit less. And The Tree of Life is this sprawling exper- experimental epic drama with cosmogony at the beginning of the film. And then this Texas family unit, not to sound like a traditional conservative uh, in the middle, and then the end of the universe or something at the end, which is much more of a hymn to creation. Uh, so I wondered what you thought about faith becoming something that's just about trying to show how intricate and beautiful and mysterious the natural world is as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of what Terrence Malick's entire project has been um, his whole life. I, You know, my personal favorite Malick film is probably still Days of Heaven, which is from the 70s. And it's it sort of plays like an Old Testament story even though it's set in the American West um but you know Malik's signature which is often parodied at this point is these like sweeping shots of wheat fields um with at like the golden hour where the sun is starting to set that's that's sort of the classic Malik shot but he's he's done this in all of his films um Tree of Life is obviously the one most people point to I think in many ways it's his magnum opus but it's sort of about our smallness in the natural world. And, and often you get the feeling that even though he tells these kind of epic stories about people having relationships and you know tragedies and epiphanies, um, they're always very rooted in the natural world. He's never made a movie where you're not very aware of the setting. So I think for instance of the new world, which is his retelling of this story of you know, Pocahontas um, in, in the American context when English settlers first appeared and it's it is just basically shots of trees the whole thing and so you're not really it's not really focused on the history story even though that's very much there but it's more about this mystical experience that humans have of being placed in a world that God made for them and A Hidden Life was such a phenomenal film I think because it in some ways it's his most Christian film Um, you know it's about a guy who is faith is what it motivated him to not swear an oath of loyalty to Hitler and he's martyred for it and but it's very much just a film about a farmer and his wife for the first hour just like in the pastoral Austrian countryside and so by the time you get to this moment where he makes these choices to not swear this loyalty oath people keep saying to him like nobody's going to know about this and nobody's going to care um, and you believe it because he's just kind of a humble farmer out and it's, you know, he's not the center of the story. The world is the center of the story. He just happens to be living in it. I think that's, you know, that's like a perspective that I think we forget is actually God's eye perspective. Like that's how he sees the world. Each of us are important to him, but we're not the focus of the world. Like none of us are the protagonist of the story of history, or we're all protagonists is maybe another way of thinking about it. Um, and so the way that Malik kind of situates his main character in Tree of Life is he starts telling this story about a man who's become disconnected from the natural environment. Then he spirals out into the creation literally of the universe for like a half an hour. Um, and we see like planets and dinosaurs and all this stuff. And then it comes down to this very simple story of this family. But it feels a little bit like we're watching the story of, you know, the fall 
of man um, all over again, just in a different context. And you have that kind of bit of the dinosaur choosing not to kill the mini dinosaurs. Like, this is an interesting thing to yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. And then by the time we get to the part with the kid in Texas, I mean, we are watching something kind of autobiographical, but we're also just watching mankind fall again and be guilty. And, you know, and then that's, that's it in a microcosm. He's basically saying we, each of us reenact that every time we're born and grow up. And he goes on and does that in some of his later films as well. And I, you know, I have mixed feelings about some of his movies, um, but I think there's no possible way to watch a Terrence Malick film and not catch on to the fact that this this is a man of um, deep and mystical faith, um, but also not, he's not somebody who's going to preach you a tidy little slogan that you can tweet or, you know, text to your friends. Um, it's something that's supposed to make you feel like you need to go through some reckoning too and yet you know tree of life or a hidden life those movies you could call them heavy i guess but really they're beautiful there's no way that they're not beautiful there's a really good review on on the roger ebert um website now of of a hidden life and in that review the the reviewer says something like if if france's opposition to the nazi regime is meaningless then why are people shouting at him like if it was really meaningless then he would just be kind of left to to sort of left in silence to sort of live out his days if if it's meaningless why are they trying to beat it out of him quite literally and and his other you know tree of life as well makes it so clear that this stuff is has meaning uh is, is, is what he's trying to say uh, which which i guess is a, a good way to finish it with with uh comments about good art because going back to the citations needed episode about the kind of quote-unquote faith movies one really important thing that their guest raised was that these films aren't good art and it's because they are as you said before propaganda and and you want you want to try and make a film if you, if you want to have an element of faith in it that has these piercing searching questions if it's a film like first reformed or silence or to have a film that is celebratory in that way with Malik while still being good art and I, there's obviously no formula for that and and it's it's interesting that these films that we've talked about today are all kind of auteur figures in the film world which is obviously something that you want to try and avoid a little bit but yeah um but yeah I I wondered if you had any kind of final thoughts about the very broad topic of Christianity in a film and the the most meaningful way in which it can be portrayed and treated yeah I think part of what's so tricky about thinking about Christianity in film is that by nature, Christianity is a is a faith that takes so many different forms. I mean, it's you know, it's intended. The whole concept is it's intended to be possible in many different cultural expressions. And I think the film world has often whittled it down to one expression, um, which often looks like some kind of a Southern american white evangelical um just because that's what people think of um so there's so many possibilities that are unexplored like i don't see a lot of portrayals of like african um christianity uh, in film I, I don't know why i've seen one uh really good one in a disney film of all things called queen of cotway but we just don't see that many of, of those kinds of films and i think it's because people's imaginations are really really shallow and i think uh Another thing that's happened is that we often think that characters in films can only be religious as like their one defining trait. (laughs) Like that's, oh, that's the religious character. And it's such a weird understanding of what religion is. It's not like your personality. It's just a thing that you, that's part of you. And so I've seen some changes and I think the more independent film is interested in religion, the more changes we'll see. Um, but the, you know, the biggest hope I have is that we'll continue to see films that wrestle with religious questions and also films that take you know, Christianity and other religions seriously as something that people are part of, uh, but th- that isn't their personality or their one defining trait, but rather that just shapes the, their view of the world. I think it will help. It can, it can do nothing but help people, but it also doesn't sell well, uh, you know, ironically enough to the typical religious movie audience. And that's something that I don't know that that will ever change. But I also think that that shouldn't stop filmmakers from trying to do better. 
that's a really really great place to leave it i wanted to yeah just move on to the final sort of segment of the show and ask you about if you have any picks from the last decade which is 2010 to 2019 in terms of films that really stood out to you uh, because now that we're all in lockdown we all have much more time to just sit down and think what are, what are the kind of highlights um but yeah i wondered if you had any any thoughts about those yeah, I always have trouble coming up with these lists because I, I have a terrible memory. Um, but uh, It's a hard question to, to pose. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one film that I, I really hope everyone sees um, and actually one that I think is is a quietly religious film um, is uh, Camera Person, which is technically a documentary, I guess, although people's perception of documentary is like a bunch of talking heads trying to educate them on something. This is the total opposite of this. Um, but it's basically a, a, a film made by Kirsten Johnson, who's a, been a camera person for documentarians, really famous documentarians for a long time. Um, and to make the film, she went back to essentially all the footage that ended up on the proverbial cutting room floor over the past 25 years. Images she remembered, footage she remembered shooting that wasn't in, didn't end up in the final products of other directors. And so she put this together and created kind of a memoir in which she interrogates the questions of like, what does it mean to be a person who points a camera at other people's tragedies or just their lives? And um, what does it actually mean to see and to be seen? And what is our responsibility to one another? Like, what do we owe one another? It's a really, really phenomenal movie. I believe it was out in 2016, probably the best documentary of the decade um, and one of the best films of the decade. Um, and so I would strongly recommend it to anyone who can get their hands on it. That that one is is one that I I have seen probably a half dozen times at this point. Uh, I show it to my students and it always kind of blows them away. It's a it's a quiet film. It sort of relies on you to start figuring out what it's doing. It's not not explicit about what it's doing, but um, the more you watch it, the more you understand how to watch it. So. That's one that I really recommend. Um, that's always my my top pick for the decade. That sounds incredible, honestly. I, I'd love to give that a watch. I, I think it's a really, really interesting thing to tap into about what it means to just look at someone and how we relate to other people as a whole through the medium of film. Um, I think we'll, we'll leave it at that. Alyssa Wilkinson, thank you so much for joining me today on Oxide Film. It's been an absolute pleasure talking about these these films. It's always good to have the chance to speak to someone who's very accomplished in in this quite specific field of of, of Christian film. Uh, so so I really appreciate having you on, and and I'm glad that we had this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, best of luck for the rest of lockdown, and I'm looking forward to reading some more Vox reviews of stuff once we can go to theaters in the summertime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Same until me. then, until then, thank you so much again. Bye bye. Bye.